Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Seb Stafford-Bloor of Tifo Football. No disrespect intended, but it's sometimes difficult to imagine there are two teams in Saturday's FA Cup final. Most of the attention, understandably, is on Liverpool and their compelling season. But in many ways, the final is more important to Chelsea. This is a club that defines itself through trophies. It's also a club at a crossroads on and off the field. A simple question, although the situation is pretty complicated, Seb. Will this season, you know, let's say this era at Chelsea, end on a winning note? Nope. No, I don't think so. I think Liverpool are too strong. They're playing too well. One of the, the difficulties you have at this time of the season is that clubs sort of portion off their commitment and motivation depending on which competition they're playing in. At the same time, I think it's quite difficult for them to turn that on and off. And, and Chelsea have been in this kind of weird zombie-like state in the league for a couple of weeks now. Their standards have slipped very, very dramatically, have done since probably the Real Madrid defeat in the Champions League. And yes, Liverpool suffered a little bit of a setback against Tottenham last weekend, but they remain the best club team in the, in the world for me. They have huge amounts of power. Also, very troublingly for Chelsea, all of Liverpool's attacking strength is aimed at a defensive unit, which is looking extremely tenuous. And the parts that aren't looking tenuous are suffering from bad bouts of form. Edouard Mendy, the goalkeeper, is having a probably his first extended rough period in English football, I'd say. He's a little bit down on where he was. And I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks, some of the moments that those defenders are coughing up have been pretty ugly. And of all teams that you wouldn't want to face when that's the case, Liverpool mm. right top of that list. Yeah. You know, the bankers and the bidders won't be on the pitch, Meigs, but do you think the takeover process has influenced performance, you know, however marginally? Because as we all know, you know, success is acquired at the margins, isn't it? Uh, I think undeniably. I think, I think there are a few aspects to it. So say if Chelsea were actually going for a title, or, we're or sorry, we're still in for a title when Abramovich was sanctioned and when the say was offered, then I think there might have been a different dynamic because I do think the fact that they've kind of been in this strange, obviously not nowhere world because they're probably going to be in the Champions League, but in this strange situation where they, 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 it, it, it's, it would take a lot for them to drop out of third place has kind of fed into this situation. And I, I think it worked both ways where at the very start, 
the Abramovich situation almost created a defiance within the squad. That does happen in those situations. And Atuka was initially really good at bringing it out. But that's always going to have a finite effect. And I, I think it's been replaced by something else where it's been replaced by uncertainty. And uncertainty is basically, it's, it's, it's one of the worst things you can have at a football club because by the nature of professional sport, you need, almost, you need 100% unwavering focus to, to really compete at top level. That, 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 re, that is the real mark. So if there's any sort of doubt about anything, that will start to have an effect, even if subconscious. And I think that that's what's happened to the Chelsea squad in the last few weeks. It's why we're seeing so many kind of drop points, so many aimless performances. Just that, that even if it's a 1% to 5% difference, that extra focus isn't there. And all you, I think you can see it in how, in how Tuchel has spoken about it, how frustrated he's got about it. But all that said, maybe slightly disagree with Seb a little bit, because I think this is actually a genuinely 50-50 game. As much for the fact that for Liverpool, this is the least of the three trophies left that they're going for, or it's the one they want least. And for Chelsea, it's now basically their entire season. And I think I think and that that's actually one of those elements that can restore focus and like and obviously I'm not going to say that it's a half motivated Liverpool it'll be anything but they'll be going for it. But there's just a subtle difference there which I think maybe levels out the game a little bit. And let's not forget, at the very start of this, just a few a few days after the uh, you know disgraceful invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and when really the first doubt about Chelsea came because it was the first the first talk that Abramovich could be sanctioned. It was the League Cup final where both teams drew nil all. Well, okay, Liverpool ended up winning on penalties, but in, in the kind of balance of play, that was a very much a 50-50 game. And I do think we could actually see similar uh, on Saturday. Yeah, I, I said in the intro, Seb, that you know, this is a club that defines itself by trophies, but it's also a club at a, tr- a crossroads. We're in a situation where they can't plan for the future. You know, recruitment deals if they are being done, they're being done on trust at the moment, mm-hmm. aren't they? Because they can't be done officially. How complicated is it to run a football club and get an, you know, and optimise a football team in these circumstances? Well, I don't think it's difficult. I think it's impossible. Like, I mean, in retrospect, actually, I think this was probably also the worst possible time for this to have happened to Chelsea because apparently the right time to get rid of players is a year before it's too late. Okay. Now, if you look at that Chelsea team at the moment, I think we've covered the defence. A lot of, you know, change needs to happen there. Rudiger's off. We know this defence looks very, very different without him. Thiago Silva is older than me. There needs to be a succession plan there. And there's a lack of quality in some of the positions. Um, Chilwell comes back at fullback. That helps, clearly. Uh, Reese James is still on the other side. Great. But you got question marks elsewhere. So one of them, I would say, is N'Golo Kante, who is... He's been a wonderful player for a really, really long time. I would say that he's he's started to approach the kind of the downslope of his career. You need to have a plan for what happens after him. The Romelu Lukaku situation is extremely difficult and nebulous, and it has been for a long time. That needs a resolution. What's happening with Christian Pulisic? Don't know. Is Hakim Ziyech's future at Chelsea? Is that where he is best? Is, is that the best place for him to spend what should be the peak of his career? Don't know. So what you have are all these unanswered questions and essentially an inability to answer any of them without kind of sort of favours and promises from a football transfer market and a, a network, which I don't know, not necessarily suited to that way of doing things, should we say. It's very, very difficult. Miguel mentioned right at the beginning, nothing worse than uncertainty in football. It's just poison for a football team. And so the result is mixed agendas, players starting to think about what they do next rather than what they're doing now. And 
the result is something not just, you know, beneath optimal, but just a million miles away from it. Mm. And in those circumstances, Migs, is the strain beginning to show on Thomas Tuchel? Yeah, I think I think you can see it in his frustration. I've been at so many press conferences over the last while where Tuchel has basically vented. I also think it's maybe given him more free reign to make not necessarily decisions he fully won. Well, basically, <laughs> essentially, doesn't does he does does no repercussions for? I mean, so pre say say the Lukaku situation. Previously, there was a whole political context there because. Lukaku was one of Abramovich's signings or one of Marina's signings. So it did make me, ultimately, they, they, it was very, very unlikely they were going to get rid this summer. Now, Tuchel still refused to play in a lot of big games, but he had to be much more diplomatic and delicate about it all. Now we're not quite in that situation where basically he's just, he, he's, I think he's been more open about what he said. He's left him out in more conspicuous moments. Like I know, I know for a fact that on the Lukaku side, there's this feeling... Players always score against their all clubs. He left them on the bench for the entire game against Everton. So, but and 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 usually in a situation like that, you know, Tuchel could be like all the talk. Be remember what happened with Antonio Conte in twenty seventeen eighteen. Now Tuchel's not quite to that level, and Conte actually won an FA Cup in that season. But I think we're at, we're we're in a similar sort of situation, or we're in a situation where he's kind of just he he's he's free to go as extreme as possible, say, with some of his decisions. There's no real constraints above him, which is, again, just a natural product situation, especially because of the fact we don't even know if Bruce Book and Marina Granovskaya will, will be staying, although there are some indications they will be. And you'd wonder as well, I mean, I suppose, again, all of this will come down to his own conversations with the new owners. At least there's a little bit more clarity there now because it's, it's the Todd Bowley group who do, do seem to have gone about a lot around the club in the right way. But yeah, I think it undeniably has fed into this situation. And it'd be very interesting to see, say, I mean, with the biggest one of all there, whether Lukaku starts on Saturday. You'd have to think, given recent games, recent big games, that won't be the case. Although, of course, Lukaku scored what was probably in that League Cup final we mentioned. He he got a goal that really should have stood because it didn't look offside. But but let's see. Mm. Well, with Lukaku, Tuchel has been... Well, he's basically indulging in manager speak which basically can never really truly disguise a breakdown in a relationship, both personally and professionally. He's basically saying Lukaku will remain an important part of the squad next season. But surely, you know, and I'll use a phrase here that the new owner, who owns LA Dodgers as well, uh, will probably understand. He is a likely trade candidate, isn't he, in the summer, Seb? Well, you'd have thought so just because of his value. Like if you were to, if Romelu Lukaku was to be made available in the summer of 2022, you'd still have enormous value, maybe not hundred million pounds. But, and I, I think actually this feeds into a bigger question about Chelsea. We're semi-aware of the figures that have been paid and the sums of money that have been committed to the club. And I think a fair question is to ask, how do you make money out of Chelsea if it's not to trim, not the fat, but if you're not to kind of economize in certain places, you're not going to, if you're a new owner and you're inheriting that, you know, terribly difficult planning situation around the new ground, which prohibits you at the moment from making, you know, any more substantial match day income, you know, you're, you're going to look at sort of inefficiencies and Lukaku is currently one of them. 
and it seems to me maybe Miguel can speak to this you know with greater precision and much more insight but it seems to me that you can't have Tuchel and Lukaku at that club for much longer it just doesn't seem that way I don't I'm not suggesting there's anything personal between them I just mean that there's clearly something a little bit wrong there to me looking at it from the outside the lack of attempt to kind of work Lukaku into a system in the way that suits him has always been quite strange that's something that I struggle to understand because the template for that existed at, at Inter Milan last year that you can see that is exactly how you, you get the best out of Romney Lukaku. And yet there's never been an obvious attempt, unless I've missed it, to kind of imitate those circumstances to create that kind of context around Lukaku, tactical context around him. It's very strange and it's been strange for a really long time and I, I have no idea what the answer is other than, you know, a parting of the ways, I guess. Yeah, if we are talking about that, it's going to be a busy summer, isn't it? You know, once this ownership deadline, which looks like end of May, goes through, obvious departures, Migs, Kepa, Marcus Alonso, maybe? I mean, Kepa, I suppose, even that's influenced by the situation, just because of the fact that it used to be about to sort of, they used to, the negotiations that say Marina would drive and they thought they had things in place. Maybe that becomes a little bit more difficult now. In fact, clubs might actually be sensing a certain vulnerability in Chelsea in that regard, given. I mean, this is this is another thing that feeds into it all, whereas we're obviously used to a version of Chelsea that's existed now for almost two decades, and it's very much a Brambish era. Okay, and now it, 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 after about five years, it, it like the, the, the early fantasy football signings dissipated, but they were still obviously capable of spending money that most clubs couldn't. Whereas now, I mean, what's, what's the likely reality now? It's probably maybe something closer to Arsenal or Spurs, where they have to be much more controlled. Now, Chelsea would argue that was the way it was going for the last few years anyway, but they still basically had a financial power, as the summer of 2020 illustrated, when they went on that, you know, in a, in, a, in a COVID market, when everyone else had to basically rein in, they went out and spent over 200 million. It feels unlikely that's going to happen anytime soon. They'll have to be much more of a kind of a, a trader club where any incomings are based on outgoings which makes the kind of future of those players all the more relevant and all the more influential. And then, of course, as you say, yes, there's a lot of players that are probably going to go and kind of on contracts. I mean, as for Laqueda, although there has been some suggestion he may stay a year. Now, given the recent form, there is probably possibly an argument that Laqueda is finally feeling the effect of so many games. Brilliant servant as he's been. Yeah, I think Alonso is likely to go. Obviously, we know the Rudiger decision is made. And that, that, that's actually, that's a lot of personality. Whatever about their current quality, that's a lot of personality from that defence that's going to require replacing. Suddenly you're desperate for Thiago Silva to stay just because of that 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 necessary experience. And yeah, and I, well, I mean, it might well be another summer like 2019, conversely, where they really have to rely on, on their academy much more. But again, this is something that's all completely up in the air. And it doesn't mean that any transfer... And also, I think there's also another side to that where, because of course, this isn't just about Chelsea in and of themselves. Chelsea are basically in a race here with Manchester City and Liverpool. And one of the reasons Manchester City and Liverpool are so far ahead of everyone else is because of how well-structured they are throughout, which basically means when it comes to transfers, they're usually kind of six to 18 months in advance. They're certainly not doing deals on the fly, which pretty much has to happen with Chelsea this summer. I mean, can you ever remember a situation where Chelsea are going into a summer, basically, and we haven't had any transfer speculation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even, 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 I know that's a very simple thing, but even that alone kind of points to the situation we're in. So, I mean... It could, I mean, of course, Chelsea could, I, I think they could still be a Champions League club next season or finish top four. But this is a club that would have had designs on being up there 
with Liverpool and Man City. Certainly thought they were going to be going into this season. Now it just feels like they're they're going to fall away a fair bit, or at least I suppose that's I think the fairest reading from the current situation. But again, let's see what happens when the new ownership actually sits in. Mm. Do you think you know, whatever happens, there, there will be a you know what's the usual political phrase, root and branch review and reform. They're going to have to look at the academy, as Meeks suggested there, Seb, and also perhaps their their loan structuring. (laughs) You you say root and branch reform, I think of batting and World Cups. (laughs) 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 That's where my mind goes. Like, oh, there's too many to mention. mention. You know, like sad little England players coming back from Heathrow, yeah. Yeah, I... Well, the loan thing is, is what it is. I mean, it's been under construction or reconstruction for some time now. The days of the loan army are long gone. And I don't think there's anybody, you know, uh, Conor Gallagher aside, who is coming back to take a first team spot immediately. To me, the really interesting thing that Miguel said, which I think is crucial and which I think a lot of fans will miss, is is this idea of transfers being done like 18 months to a year in advance. Like we know that like Ziyech was completed six months before he arrived. Kai Harvest was a long-term kind of bit of work by Chelsea, uh, which heavily involved Mourinho Granovskaya. And I think was the, the, the problem that the Chelsea are going to have beyond loans, beyond the academy, is if you look at the kind of the talent coming through the game, so if you think about some of the most desirable players in the sport at the moment, uh, Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappé, of course, yeah, they're, they're already spoken for probably. But look at someone like, I don't know, Christian Kunku or RB Leipzig. Now, that's a really good example of someone that, like, if you were, if you were a properly functioning club, and if you were a club that sort of had its next three-year cycle planned properly, you'd already, already be quite far down the line with Leipzig in trying to conclude that piece of business before, you know, you don't, as a as a big beast club, you don't get to July the 1st or June the 1st and be like, okay, lads, rub your hands together. What are we going to do this summer? That's not really how it works. And so Chelsea, by virtue of this situation, just because it hasn't been completed yet, they can't be anywhere. And you wonder, like... I don't know the answer to this, but you wonder how you address that. You wonder how you make up that ground because at, at the top of the game, you make a, you miss out on a kind of a, a talent class like that and you're three years behind. And I don't know what the future is. I mean, I, I think that the thing with, thing with the academy and, and the same is really true with kind of the, the, the group of loan players is, back to what I said previously, where does the money come from? Like if we're thinking of this as a kind of a club, a Chelsea sort of adopting more of an Arsenal Tottenham model, then where are you taking the value to invest it back into the first team if you're not going to run on a benefactor model anymore? And so that obviously clearly has consequences for the academy and and lines. And so yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I have absolutely no idea what comes next. But you you can't you can't compete with a kind of an ad hoc policy. So yeah, mm, because weren't cracks already emerging? Megs in in the recruitment strategy, you know, you, you you see Tammy Abraham's Renaissance in Rome, and when you look at the offensive players who've been brought in, you know, Pulisic, Zayech, Werner, Havertz, isn't the nub of the problem that none of those players have had what they needed to have, which is a statement season. Yeah, I feel like that. I mean, one of one of the kind of um, lines that's come out in the last few days is that, and again, we, we come back to this issue, that Tuchel felt they needed a, a specific type of number nine to fit into his team this season, and that could be what takes him up to the next level. Now, the push is obviously for Lukaku. Since then, 
And I suppose this isn't actually really a reflection of Lukaku as a player. It's more just about styles and styles make teams where he basically wasn't the particular style that Tuchel was looking for. And that Tuchel has been surprised that there wasn't a due diligence done, or not due diligence, but I suppose that something like this wasn't seen. And the argument within football has been that this isn't something that would happen at Liverpool or Manchester City these days. And again, we have the contrast with just how easily Luis Diaz has adapted to both Liverpool and the Premier League. And I suppose maybe that does speak to an issue. But then it also speaks to a, a situation where... Now, so some of this is a consequence of just basically the managers and how long they've been there. But where with, with, with City and Liverpool, they've all been building to a specific ideal for so long. Whereas with Chelsea, I mean, that squad alone is a product of how many different managerial regimes. And that means when a couple like... Even for a manager like Tuchel, it will it will take a few windows at least to try and to bring it closer to your own vision. And I I think that's one of the ongoing issues at Chelsea right now. There's obviously now come into this, it's hit an unexpected impasse that creates even more uncertainty other on the other end. And I I think that's I mean because one of the things about Chelsea for some time with Tuchel is even though he's seen rightfully I would say as a very progressive manager. And, you know, it's all the kind of modern principles. He's quite close to Guardiola in terms of approach. But I think because of because this Chelsea squad isn't truly his, they, 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 and they've never really cut loose in terms of attacking. They've, there's only been certain games. And again, some of that is tied to the striker issue. But we, we like given the array of f- talented forwards, that they are, or maybe more so talented or p- p- potential in that squad, We've never really seen them link up in kind of great exhibitions, bar maybe the odd 7-0 against Norwich on that, but certainly not that statement attacking performance in a big game. And I think part of that is to do because basically, because it's such a kind of a, a, a squad that accommodates so many different, the, the, the ideas of so many managers and, and, and so many different kind of approaches, his, his initial instinct or his initial decision was basically just, right, we're going to put the right defensive structure in place. That'll make us hard to def- at least hard to beat, then we can build from there. But the issue is they're still building from there, and it's had the offset effect where suddenly, um, because of this uncertainty we're talking about, that that structure now looks now looks vulnerable and new. I think one of the fascinating aspects of the final will be that both clubs um, emphasise the importance of of wing backs or you know, highly offensive full backs. You mentioned it earlier, just in passing. Seb, how much have, have Chelsea missed Ben Chilwell? And how do you see Reese James evolving as a player? I think they've missed they've missed Ben Chilwell enormously. Marcus Alonso is such a funny player, isn't he? Like I've I've never really thought he was particularly good, and yet he survives. Like he's always there and he's always doing things. I think Ben Chilwell is a, a different category of footballer both in terms of like, his delivery from wide positions, also the kind of the, the patterns of his attacking influence. I think there's just a better technical player there. Uh, Reese James, to me, I, I think the really interesting with him, interesting thing with him is it's going to come in the next sort of year to two years because clearly Chelsea are going to have to add to their defensive group at some point, plenish what they've lost. Now, what does Reese James's position become? It, it, does he 
is he one of those kind of outside center halves that you see in a back three? Because he can play that position really well. Does he become a proper wing back? And you'd be tempted to say yes, just because of how good his attacking contribution is. And he's one of the best crossers of the ball I've ever seen from his position in English football, without question. And just, he's also, he's part of that generation of, of wing back who, they're happy coming centrally. Like previously, like fullback wing backs domain was the touchline, you overlap, you go past your winger sometimes and you get to the byline. Anytime they would come inside and sort of go towards the teeth of a defence, at times they'd look like they're a little bit lost and you'd see these kind of flaws in their technique or problems with their decision making. He looks entirely comfortable in that position. And so like his evolution to this point is very impressive, but I still feel that there's quite a long way to go on that front because I don't think we've seen kind of the rainbow of his abilities yet. So he's fascinating. But yeah, you get those two back on the side full time and it's a very different, it's a very different attacking proposition because what you're able to, if you think about like your wing backs as temp pegs or creators of space or players who are able to kind of give your side an attacking gear change for one of a less sort of pretentious phrase, if you're without them, and I think this has been proven in all sorts of teams across the last five years, if you're without proper power at wing-back, full-back, or you're, you have an imbalance, or you take one out and leave one in, you look at the effect that that can have over the rest of a team, you could definitely make the argument that a full-back, wing-back is the most important position in modern football, I think. Yeah, given that, and you know, this is, you know, we're in danger of entering you know, a cliched area of debate, which has never stopped us in the past, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> Love the cliched uh, area of debate. <laughs> exactly. We thrive on it. Um, Chelsea, do you think they'll target Trent Alexander-Arnold, Migs? Well, certainly the spacing behind him, which I think is the big one with, with Alexander-Arnold. Because I, I think it's obviously become a little bit of a flashpoint of debate, but rather than actually being a reflection on the player's ability... It's more just to kind of, as as uh, Seb has touched on there, just his role in the team, where really a wing-back and a Klopp team, and I suppose this points to where modern football is, is where it's actually both, and, and it's similar to, to pressing, you know, pressing is both at, at the exact same time a defending, a defensive and an attacking method of play or idea. And similar, a wing-back and a Klopp team, or sorry, a wing-back in this Klopp team, this applies to both Robertson and Alexander-Arnold. Maybe Alexander-Arnold a little bit more because of the weapon that is his right foot. It's both a defensive position and an attacking position. But that defending, it doesn't come from the kind of nuts and bolts defensive work that we so associate with kind of your classic right back. It actually comes from, I was talking to um, an assistant coach at another Premier League club about this. And I said, where Liverpool really stand out, what makes them so difficult to play it's it's the line, which is basically the two wing backs and the two number eights standing uh, working as a four, and they they push up in unison so much that they basically pen you be, behind. That that that's actually what works defensively and and attacking. But the issue, of course, is and it's really difficult to exploit because you've got to be spot on to do it. But it does mean that there is an area behind those wing backs if you can get the ball there. And, I, and and that's why it's become one way to at least get at Liverpool. In fact, I was at the Villarreal game last Tuesday and both of their goals came from exactly that approach. In fact, both of their goals and the other big chance that was missed came from putting in, putting the ball in behind the wing-backs, one of them behind Trent Alexander-Arnold. And yeah, I think yeah, um, that's where we'll see maybe the most uh, tactical intrigue, to use another cliche, in this match, in, in, in the space behind the wing-backs. 
because where the, that's where there's give in these teams. Yeah. So how did Chelsea then, Seb, deal with the the threat of Mo Salah? And when you think about it, he's almost being double. Well, he's being routinely double teamed and sometimes even triple teamed. Is it that you just try and smother him? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a blueprint in the work that Spurs did at Anfield last weekend in that with a player like that, there's no there's no perfect solution. There's no tactical plan which removes him from the game. You just kind of, you take your chances, you know, in the margins. So I think what Spurs did a good job of was packing the penalty box, inviting him back, well, sending him either down the touchline or inviting him back onto his left foot but giving him absolutely no shooting angle, making sure that when he cuts back, and he looks at that curve that he likes to put in the top corner, that you've got enough bodies between your goalkeeper and the ball. I don't quite know how Chelsea do that because I, I think that um, I think the the, the the group of Tottenham defenders at Anfield are slightly better at the moment than what Chelsea are able to field. I don't like Alonso against Salah at all. I think that's been shown in the past that that is a mismatch and that's one that Liverpool will be um, looking towards. Also, um, the protection in the front of the defence has fallen away a little bit in recent weeks. I don't know whether, we touched on this at the beginning, I don't know whether that is an application problem or a tactical issue. It's really difficult to say at the moment just because of the many issues surrounding the club. But if you don't have that organisation, if you don't have players, defenders passing over marking responsibilities and filling gaps, someone like Salah is going to ruin you. And if Salah doesn't, then he's creating space for, I mean, think, think of the kind of the range Think of the accomplished range shooters that Klopp has there. Thiago, Luis Diaz, Naby Keita, Mane's not exactly bad from distance, is he? Henderson can can cut you from distance sometimes as well. So it's a really difficult kind of pick your poison type situation. The best you can do is just, yeah, block up the middle and hope for the best. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Tuchel will come up with some better language than that for it. <laughs> Having won a European <laughs> Cup and just cross your fingers and close your eyes. But it is basically that because, and that's a mark of respect because he has played at such a high level this season. Mm. You know, we've got Diego Jota actually having his first lull at Liverpool, Migs. Do you think that's directly linked to the amazing impact that Diaz has made? Uh, maybe partly, and even if it's kind of a subconscious thing again, just because, like, you know, Jota must be looking at the kind of the reception Diaz is getting. Hey, that used to be me. I I I I was a new guy getting all the praise. It was now and, and Diaz almost taking it up a level. And I like and let's be fair also, because Diaz is actually he's a more exciting player. I mean, this isn't to kind of do down what Jota does, but <laughs> Jota's main skill is basically kicking or heading the ball into the goal quite precisely. Um <laughs> not a bad skill. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but, but Diaz obviously it's about he can he can do that, but he's also about kind of where he gets the ball and so he runs at teams. So there's more of a dimension to his play. So it does feel like almost, I, I don't want to say he becomes an Origi for, for, for Liverpool, but someone like, it's almost as if it's kind of evolved a little bit to be where Jota's there when they just need to get the ball to someone in the box. Whereas Diaz kind of fits their, their over, overall play maybe a bit more. And hence, because I mean, I hadn't, the, the initial discussion was always going to, was always be, it was going to be about whether it was going to be Jota or Firmino whether Diaz is going to eventually succeed Mane, whereas what's actually happened is that Diaz has been the one playing through the centre with the two um, totemic forwards either side. But, but yeah, uh, and then partly I think maybe it's, it's also just one of those things that happens. I mean, sometimes, especially when a player has a great first year at a club, 
I mean, what, what you always hear from people in football and the working kind of the, the preparation side and the analysis is that one very basic, uh, know, basic and obvious reason that players do have a kind of a second season syndrome of their own is because everyone has now had a year to, to basically research them in, in the division. So they know more what they're about and they can prepare against them more. And it means the player themselves have to, has to adapt. And obviously, Jota was, at, was um, in the Premier League before. But I suppose it's, at, it's, in, it's in his specific role in this Liverpool team. And suddenly everyone can, everyone can now work around that. Whereas Diaz is a bit of an unknown quantity. So I do, I do think that's fed into it. And also just, I suppose, the natural ebb and flow of form. And I, actually, what's, what spoke to it a bit, there was one chance Jota had against Villarreal in the first half. Yeah, because he came off at half time. Where I did find myself thinking, six months ago, Jota just would have smashed that into the corner in that kind of typical, in that kind of Alan Shearer style he has. Uh, whereas in this occasion, he hit it straight at Rui. And Rui, I mean, given his performances. <laughs> he actually not the saved best it. Game. Not <laughs> yeah. the best game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you know, you, we spoke there about totemic players, you know, like, like Sadio Mane. He's having a season for the ages, isn't he, Seb? I know we've touched on this subject in the past, but I think it's worth dwelling upon the social impact, the force for good that a player like that can be, and someone like Salah, for instance. Is that something sometimes that we just overlook a bit? Yeah, I I think so. And here's a scenario for you. Liverpool probably not going to win the Premier League, but... The end of this year, before the World Cup starts, because the Ballon d'Or is being voted for ahead of Qatar 2022, Sadio Mane might have won the European Cup, the FA Cup, the League Cup, and the Africa Cup of Nations in the same cycle. Um, and got them to the World Cup as well. Which is and got different. it. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And the thing I'd say about that is that there's a danger here that I, I, I hope dearly, if, if, he, if he achieves all of those things, then, then he should win the Ballon d'Or. Because the problem is, if he doesn't, it creates this kind of perception that, ah, it's just Africa Cup of Nations. Where in, re- in reality, it's an enormously difficult tournament to win. And Senegal winning it this season was a, an amazing accomplishment because for Mane personally, he had that nasty concussion situation in, I think, the first group game. And also, don't underestimate that, you know, unlike the European Championship, we're unlike a normal World Cup. You're not staging these tournaments in the middle of a break. You're staging in the middle of a hugely taxing domestic season during which... You've already had the kind of the run of Premier League games and the kind of the exertions that go with having to play uh, Wednesday, Sunday in the Champions League too. And he has kind of also been a talisman within that team because he's not the only excellent player that Senegal have, but he is their player, as in he is the kind of the poster of Senegalese football at the moment. And he's had to live with that burden. He's overcome it and gone through the tournament and won the tournament. Socially, I think it's very, very important that you recognise that and you don't just kind of go down the kind of, yeah, but who won the European Championship last year? Let's just give, I don't know, a Ballon d'Or to Jorginho. You know, that kind of stuff. I, I, I think it's very, 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 very important to anoint the right players at the right time now, especially in this kind of post-Ronaldo, post-Messi world. And I'd also say that like one of the kind of the, the more subtle threads that has gone through a season is Miguel mentioned the kind of the, the rises and falls of form. Now, Mane is a really good example of that because actually before Christmas, he was, I mean, only by his own standards, so it's a relative uh, comment, but he wasn't at his very, very best. And he entered AFCON as, I don't know, kind of seven and a half out of 10 Sadio Mane's 
you know, seven Marnays to the usual nine, basically. <laughs> and he came back and kind of compensated for Mohamed Salah's slight drop from a 10 out of 10 weekly performance to maybe an eight and a half. Also, at times, he's played in a slightly adapted role. So um, Mane spent much of his season, much of the second half of the season, like through the middle, which is a role we haven't seen him in much before, almost doing kind of Roberto Firmino type things. So as a package, it's pretty hard to beat, right? As, as, yeah. as, a, as a kind of body of work in 2022, that is, um, I mean, that's right up there with whatever Karen Benzema does. So I, I hope that gets recognised. And I hope the AFCON side of it gets recognised too, because Senegal were by no means a lock to win that tournament. And, you know, there were some talented sides that kind of fell on their own, um, tripped over themselves during that competition as well. So what an amazing accomplishment that would be. Mm, certainly, I agree with that. The one thing that also strikes me, Migs, looking at, at Liverpool at the moment, is, you know, the great managers are people developers, aren't they? And managers you know, create other managers. I look at that squad and someone like Jordan Henderson, James Milner, they strike me as coaches in the making. Do they do the same thing to you? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, and given there's been so much talk, right, so it's only clips about that you see where they exert that influence on the squads. I think that's that's certainly the case. But then I, I suppose I, 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 it's also possible, I suppose, we can lull ourselves into kind of a bit of a, a false perception of these things. I mean, look, say at the Manchester United at the Ferguson era, so so many of those we would have thought were going to be, you know, even future Manchester United managers. And how many actual league titles or or Champions League do they have among them? Is there, is there actually is there is there is there is there a league title among any any former? I think uh, I don't think there actually is. I think Keane won like the first division Keane, with Sunderland. Yeah, but Keane not, won the championship. Yeah, and, and Keane was always held up as kind of the ultimate. I remember. One line and two before he even took the Sunderland job in two thousand and six, the line was there was one line going, going around um, that you know Keane made himself a great player, but he was born a great manager, which is obviously not something that's hasn't but, yeah, that I mean, hasn't stood up that one to time has it that well really yeah yeah uh, but yeah. I suppose I suppose there's maybe just because yeah, I, I, I suppose there's also the evolution of management there as well. I mean, to be honest, even if you, if you want to flip on the other direction, whereas I, I think you're absolutely right in that Henderson look, looks definitely like a manager. If When I was watching Steven Gerrard, uh, who was his predecessor as Liverpool captain, and let's be fair, a, a better player, I, I would never consider Gerrard a future manager. I thought he was too, too individualist, too almost introverted, personally. Obviously not as a footballer, but in terms of his personality, to be a good manager, yet... He's obviously won a title with Rangers, and despite some natural up and down, I think he's done a, a solid job at Villa. So yeah, I suppose basically to answer your question, uh, it looks like it, but uh, who knows? Who knows, indeed. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the the broader picture, Seb, the actual FA Cup itself—I know it's a pretty much an annual debate. You know, I think I think you know, being a traditionalist, it's a shame that, that the final is no longer seen as the natural end to a season, domestic season at least. How relevant is the FA Cup and what more could be done to increase its relevance, do you think? Very interesting question that, because I suspect that the Premier League, well, uh, the, the FA Cup, um, I, don't, I, I mean, we've got to define our terms a little bit. I mean, in terms of what relevance means, I think supporters might redevelop some affection for it because the game is changing in a way that means that 
a lot of competition is just completely unattainable. Like uh, there's there's very little aspiration to be had in the game. The Premier League is, is is dominated by clubs with enormous resources. The Champions League is well, I goodness knows what UEFA is trying to do to the Champions League at the moment. Um, you know, in, in ten years maybe it will be played on the moon. Um, between two clubs who've had historic wildcards. I don't know, but it's not exactly the people's tournament, is it? And so what you're left with is an FA Cup, a League Cup to a less extent, but an FA Cup where, yes, still obviously dominated by big clubs, but you feel, despite those massive advantages, that it's still a bit more of an even playing field because one-off games are better for smaller clubs. They just are. doesn't mean it's good, but it's better. And so it's the last thing that you can can hope for. I mean, I, that might be a little bit fatalistic, but that seems to be where the game is going. Because I, I think if you look at the other competitions, it's not necessarily the failure to contain artificial advantages, which troubles me. It's this newer habit of trying to eliminate competition altogether that I find really troubling or the kind of a way of creating mulligans for, t- for, for very, very wealthy teams who spend all of their money badly. I think that's a very discouraging road that we're treading. And in a way, the FA Cup can never really do that because of its structure. And that's to its advantage. Now, I don't think it's going to ever develop the same kind of prestige or retain what it once was. It's never going to be the focal point of a season. It's never going to be the kind of the um, what everything leads to ever again, because that's just not how football works anymore. But I think it will be, I think it will lose that sort of, oh, it's only an FA Cup weekend feel that it's had for some time and development more of a kind of hey it's a relief from the grind of being smashed 7-0 by the English Bayern Munich every week you know it's it's that and I, I think that's in its favour you know used correctly obviously but it, it could be hopefully yeah hopefully indeed and at least you know what what a final is the essence of is knockout football which I I, I enjoy and love so just as a final point then chaps quick prediction please Migs who wins oh I didn't go to penalties. <laughs> Will they bring Kepper on for them? <laughs> well, mate, and then you'd wonder whether, I mean, especially with the way penalties end up becoming a kind of a second-guessing operation. Maybe Chelsea have actually learned now from um, from from February. And then, OK, Chelsea's win the penalties. And, but <laughs> okay. Seb? Uh, I'm going to go with Liverpool, and I'm going to be a bit more specific. I'm going to say that Luis Diaz has his um, kind of crowning moment. I think he, of course, Hafik in that little area in front of the Chelsea defence. And uh, cap a, a fantastic first half season. Two 0 Two 0 Well, I'll I'll go with Liverpool as well. Look, we all know about the distractions and the cumulative drain on their energies, but there is something about this Liverpool team, actually this Liverpool squad, that takes it to another level. I think they'll drag out one more performance of intensity, and intelligence, and industry. Let's face it; they deserve to be associated with and historic achievement. In the meantime, uh, thanks to Seb and Miguel for their insights. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 